A toast to the hunters from your friends at Grain Belt. May the mornings be clear and the fresh air be crisp. May you find solace in the silence. May the stillness settle your soul. May your long shot stay true. May your heart roam free. May you find what you seek in the fields you stock. May your call to the wild be answered. And at the end of the day, may you share in the thrill of the hunt with your friends. So here's to the eight pointers and the 12 ounces. Here's to you and to your thirst for adventure. Bring Grain Belt to the outdoors with our limited edition premium hunting season pack. This season, enter to win a hunting trip for two to Brown's Hunting Lodge, wherever you can find premium 12 and 24 pack cans. For more information, visit our website at grainbelt.com forward slash hunting dash trip. Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter. Joined as always by the Jacob to my Esau, Brandon. It's Old Testament, so quite frankly, I'm just not going to know it, but how you doing? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, here's the funny thing. Jacob is really the, I mean, people people are going to be really thrown because they're going to think, well, Tony should be Jacob because Esau is kind of the sidekick. But see, Esau is the hunter in the story. And Jacob is the favored son, so All you right. get to be you get to be the protagonist this week, and I'm the antagonist. How about that? I'm cool with that. That works well yeah. for me. <laughs> good, good. Uh, hey, how have you been, buddy? I've been well. Yeah, just hanging in there, living the podcast life. How ready for myself? ready for Thanksgiving? What are you gonna ha- bake a big turkey or what? I'm not making anything. I'm going over to my partner's place. So <laughs> nice. Oh, with her family. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, good for you. Then you can just slide in, sit in the corner, watch some football. Yeah, exactly. And, well, pretend to watch football because, quite frankly, I could care less. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I actually turned off the Vikings game last night at the two-minute warning because they were ahead and had been ahead the whole game. But I'm like, they're going to lose this game. Woke up this morning. Pulled up the Star Tribune. Yep, sure enough, they lost it with a minute to go. So I made the right choice. You Got a little right bit extra choice. sleep. Yeah, well, there you go. And, you know, you didn't get the heartbreak either that us Minnesota yeah. fans are very much used to. Yeah, exactly. Man, I'll tell you what. I, I've been hunting again in South Dakota. Yawn, crickets. I mean, same old, same old. Hitting a lot of birds, having a ton of fun. Crosby's been hunting great. But I came home from this last hunting trip, and I had an email in my inbox from a guy who had also been hunting in South Dakota. He had had less successful of a hunt. But he went on to tell me a story about how he and his hunting buddies went to the same diner every morning for breakfast in a little town in West River, South Dakota. And they had kind of gotten to know their waitress who served them breakfast every morning. And on their fourth morning there, um, she told them that the night before she had shot her first ever deer. and Then she went on to tell them the story of shooting this deer at 320 yards with her husband and her son helping her. And she started weeping at the, at Brandon, at the spirituality of it. Oh, really? Wow. Yes. He said all of them at the table, they were all crying. And she was just saying it was one of the most spiritual experiences of her life that after shooting that deer, she never wanted to kill another animal again. And, also, she couldn't wait to go deer hunting again. Like it's that really mixed feelings, which I actually, frankly, write almost that exact thing in my book about my experience of deer hunting. 
Um, so I just want to say, I love hearing stories like that. It's in, just incredible. And this guy's a podcast listener, you know, and he said, I really thought you'd appreciate this. This is the kind of stuff you talk about all the time on the podcast. So thanks for sending that in. Any, I, I love hearing stories like that. It's incredible. I think they're under, underreported, frankly. I think, um, I think a lot of people have a pretty spiritual experience when they're hunting, but since we don't talk about it a lot, a lot of people kind of keep it to themselves. And, um, and I want, I want to, you know, I want to platform those stories. So send them in, you know, send me emails or direct messages or whatever. It's pretty great to hear that stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. That that I can relate to that too without even hitting one single thing yet. <laughs> yeah. Guys. But I mean, I, I can already feel like in inside my brain, I would definitely have that dual conflict. So it's Yeah. Yep, yep. It's it's that. It's both. It's yep. both. Um well, my guest today, we talk about the spirituality of hunting. Uh Bob Herbst, what an incredible career. You can read about it in the show notes. This guy, he worked for the Minnesota DNR. Um, he goes way back in Minnesota. He worked for this thing called keep Minnesota green, which my grandpa, I guess was a part of, cause we have a sign with my grandpa's name on it that says keep Minnesota green. He ended up being coming the commissioner of the Minnesota DNR. Then he got recruited by the Jimmy Carter administration to come to Washington DC and work for the department of the interior, which he did and rose up to, well, at one point he was the acting secretary, but uh, he spent most of his career as the, as the undersecretary. And he's a, he's a forester by training, but just an incredible human being who, who lived, has lived a life of service um, to the state of Minnesota and to the nation. He has great stories. And as a tease, and another reason you should listen to this episode this guy was like buddies with Sigurd Olson. He like he was he hung out with Sigurd Olson in Sigurd's sauna. Okay, so if that doesn't get you to listen, I don't know what will. Uh, it's I, I'm honored to have him on the podcast. Really glad he did it. I think people will love it. Um, he's he's been around a long time. He has a lot of great stories, and and it's great to hear from him. So. I think you all all enjoy this. Uh, I want to thank Grain Belt and their special fall camo sport pack, which you can get wherever Grain Belt is sold. And uh, at all those places, you can also register to win uh, um, an experience at Brown's Hunting Lodge, which just would be an incredible opportunity too. So thanks to Grain Belt. We're always open to new sponsors. Feel free to step up to the plate if you're interested in sponsoring. Thanks for listening, for sharing, for giving us many, many stars, thumbs up, likes, etc., cetera, um, and subscribing to the Reverend Hunter podcast. We love your support and we love to hear from you. So thanks. Here's my conversation with Bob Herbst. Bob, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that you've come on this podcast with me. This is, um, I mean, I feel like we have so many connections. We'll, we can talk for well over our allotted time. And you've done so many things, but I want to start, I think, just by talking about Minnesota and your, your service to Minnesota and, and your, do you miss Minnesota now that you're, uh, you're, you, you, you obviously got involved in the federal government and I suppose that's what pulled you out to Virginia, 
Um, but do you miss Minnesota? Do you get back uh, I here miss, at all? I miss it a lot. And, um, uh, of course, we have, uh, I have brothers in Minnesota, and I have a son in, in uh, Minnesota. Um, and we grew up, both Evie and I, in Minnesota. She grew up in Rochester, and I grew up in Minneapolis. And we met at the University of Minnesota. My wife, Evie, was uh, taking home economics, and uh, I... I decided to uh, go into conservation, and so I took forestry and wildlife at the University of Minnesota. And uh, my first job was uh, north of the cities in Cambridge, Minnesota. And uh, mm -hmm. there we were very much interested in, in reforestation, planting trees in that area. And so I oversaw uh, a lot of the management plans for woodlots and, and supervised a lot of the tree planting in that area. Yeah, I, I was telling you before we started recording that, and, and all my listeners know this, that uh, we have a family plot of 276 acres in Crow Wing County. It's a tr registered tree farm. And uh, we have a great relationship with a DNR forester who works out of Aiken. And he's helped us with buckthorn abatement and with we've planted about 5,000 white and red pine trees on our property. We've planted about 500 balsams. Um, the buckthorn is, the, is currently the scourge yeah. of our property yeah. that we're trying to get rid of. Well, I and my great, I, I want to ask you, but because I told you too that my there's that we have a sign in our garage that my with my grandpa's name on it, it says keep Minnesota <laughs> green. And I wonder that now I find out that you, that was like your organization. So I, I'm wondering, like, what was that all about? What, well, what got we, you into that? Uh, I worked for the conservation department as a forester for about uh, six or seven years and then uh, became the executive director of Keep Minnesota Green. And we essentially had two functions. One was to promote tree farming uh, in Minnesota. And the other, of course, was to... Uh, get publicity out on, on uh, forest fires and being careful with uh, fire. And uh, from that job, I, uh, I ended up being the deputy commissioner of conservation. And then uh, that was under Governor Rolvog. And uh, the commissioner mm. was Wayne Olson. And uh, the two of them uh, decided to run again. Uh, so Wayne had to resigned from being commissioner and all of a sudden I was the commissioner of conservation at, you know, I was about 30 years old and uh, wow. they said, well, they'll just leave me there until the election's over. Well, then of course they both lost and governor Lavander came in, <laughs> but governor Lavander called me into the office and said, he'd like me to stay on. He'd promised the commissioner's job to Yarley Lerfalm and, uh, but he wanted me to remain as a deputy. So I did. And then uh, for a couple of years, and then I went down to Chicago and I was in charge of the uh, Isaac Walton League of America. And, uh, and then uh, when the governorship changed again, uh, Wendell Anderson came in as governor and I got a phone call and, and uh, he said he'd like me to come back to Minnesota and be the commissioner of DNR. The, <laughs> the legislature yeah. had, combined the conservation department with other uh, organizations and uh, created a DNR on paper, but they wanted me to 
to uh, structure the organization. And so I was a commissioner of DNR for many years uh, and then uh, and then came out here to Washington uh, to be assistant secretary of interior. Now, Bob, the these days, the commissioner of the DNR, it's a very political post in Minnesota. And I don't mean that necessarily in the way of... Um, yeah. Well, you know what I mean by political. I mean, it's it's very, I think it's a very, very difficult job, especially there's some very controversial issues like how many walleyes can you take out of Mille Lacs or can you, you know, what about, C, is CWD a real threat to our wild deer herd or can we hunt wolves, these kind of things. I imagine it was similarly, because I've looked at your resume, it was similarly um, a, a kind of a powder keg when you were commissioner. So what were the kind of issues well, of you course, were dealing with? Well, of course, it is a, it is a complicated and highly responsible uh, uh, position. And fortunately, of course, I had good staff and I felt I had a lot of public support. Uh, I could go through a lot of, of the issues that we face, but I'll, I'll mention a few, a few to you. Uh, the Metropolitan Airports Commission wanted to, uh, build an airport at Ham Lake, north of the Twin Cities. And uh, it was a mistake because, of course, it was on top of a swamp where the wildlife and and, uh, birds were, but also it was a recharge of the underground water supply of the Twin Cities. And so I denied the permit and uh, did not allow them to build the airport there. And so it was turned down. Uh, perhaps the most controversial issue that we faced uh, was Lake Superior. Uh, Reserve Mining Company was dumping about 67,000 tons a day of taconite tailings into the lake and polluting it. And the colloidal silts from the taconite tailings uh, hung in suspension and discolored the lake and, and also a number of the towns on Lake Superior had to get bottled water. (laughs) And so I called the company in uh, to talk over the fact that they were polluting the lake and uh, they had to quit it. But uh, they kind of, um, I don't know whether they thought I was too young and they could get by with doing it or what, but but in any case, uh, they they didn't like the idea of not dumping. And so I told them, you know, that I had no course but to take them to court. And so the Pollution Control Agency in, in Minnesota and the EPA nationally and myself sued Reserve Mining. And the case was under Judge Lord. And he got so upset with the company that he got kicked off the case. But in any case, uh, <laughs> we were successful. He was a very yeah, famous judge. For those who don't know, he was judge, a, judge Miles Lord was a kind of a larger than life, right. larger than life figure in Minnesota. But, yeah. Uh, the result was, of course, we won the case in terms of the fact that they couldn't dump in the lake anymore. <coughs> I wanted him to dump mm-hmm. further back, twenty miles away from the lake, but I didn't win that. Uh, the the court ruled that they could dump at seven miles from the lake, but in any case. Um, we saved Lake Superior, the largest lake in the world, uh, from this pollution problem and uh, restored Lake Superior. Mm. Uh, so that, of course, was my biggest uh, uh, 
issue that I faced when I was commissioner. I also faced the lawsuit from the Indians uh, on uh, the hunting and fishing rights. And uh, I negotiated with the Indians, and we, we solved that by, by issuing two different licenses, one for the reservation and one not for the reservation. Uh, so we solved that. Uh, we had uh, the worst fire season that we ever had in the history of Minnesota. And uh, I was faced with closing uh, northern Minnesota to mining and tourism and everything else in order to uh, uh, keep the state from getting burned up. And uh, so it was highly controversial, uh, the fact that I, that I did that. But in the long run, uh, the paper editorially uh, determined that it was the right thing to do in public opinion after it was over, decided it was the right thing to do. I also had uh, a deer season closed uh, because the deer population was right. way down. And that's not an easy thing to do, yeah. as you know, in Minnesota. But I, I closed Oh, my gosh. I, closed I can't the imagine season. the that yeah. one year in order to restore the population of deer. And I could go on and on yeah. with, Did uh, it work? with uh, issues uh, that we faced. But so it, so it is a complicated job, and, uh, I, but yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I always felt that, uh, you know, we did the right thing. And I, I'm, I'm still pleased to see that even the emblem is an emblem that I designed when I was commissioner, so uh, it makes me feel good. Is that right? <laughs> then I went on to Washington. Oh, that's and great. We've been here ever since. Well, before we track you into the federal government, the reason we're talking is because the pastor of your church, Jason Michelli, who's who was just on this podcast a, a month or two ago, went with me to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. He'd, he'd not been there before. It was his first experience there. And I'm sure he came home and told you about it. He did. One of the things I ask everyone who comes with me to the Boundary Waters to read a book by Sigurd Olson. I, I recommend The Singing Wilderness because that's really the one all about the Boundary Waters. Um, and then I insist that they refer to him as Saint Sigurd while we're canoeing. Yes. Because in my mind, he is a saint. I mean, I think he should be sainted by well, the Church of Environmental Love or something yeah. like that. So, uh, I mean, Jason texted me uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago and said, oh, this, remember, there's this guy in my church. He knew Sigurd Olsen. And, you know, if, if, I got, if I've got the timeline right, I mean, you're... the, the the protections around the Boundary Waters happened in a few different stages, yeah. starting in 1948 with Voyager National Park. But I think, wasn't the final, wasn't it in 78 or 79 that they yeah. banned yeah. snowmobiles, motorboats? So that must have been when you were commissioner. Yeah. Let me, uh, I'd like to tie the discussion to all of northeastern Minnesota, the Voyager's Park. Please the Boundary Waters Canoe Area, and Lake Superior, because they're all related. Uh, Sigurd Olson was a good personal friend of mine, and we worked on many issues uh, together, and I, uh, I've been to his uh, listening point several times and sat on the stoop of his cabin there and, and enjoyed the sauna that he had down by the lake. Uh, several issues that I remember... Uh, 
one, of course, was uh, the reserve mining case that we talked about, uh, where they yeah. wanted to dump the the tailings when when the ju- when the judge ruled that they had to dump it on the land. One of them was Tedaguch area, and uh, he and I got the press out there to take a look at it, and uh, I and the both of us were able to convince the Nature Conservancy to give us the money to purchase the land ahead of the state appropriating money and making it a state park. And so that's one of the things that we worked on together. The, the, the different stages, perhaps the most significant stage was in 1978, which is a year after I came here uh, in Washington. And uh, Jim Overstar had introduced a bill called the uh, Boundary Waters Canoe Area uh, Wilderness uh, Act. And it provided for making the area officially a wilderness, but it also added an additional 50,000 acres uh, uh, to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area. And the interesting thing about that, that most people don't know, uh, (coughs) and... uh, uh, is that while he introduced the bill and it was passed by the House, in the Senate, it was on the bottom of the pile before the Senate was going to leave town. And I got a call from the Forest Service, and uh, Heinzelman was his name, the forester. And he said, Bob, the act is down the list. They may not get to it tonight to vote. And then they leave tomorrow. Can you do anything about it? So I called Walter Mondale, who was vice president at the time, and I reached him in a car, and he was in his car, and I told him it was down the list. And Jim Overstar had introduced the bill, and it passed the House. It was in over to the Senate to get voted on, but it was down the line priority-wise. And so I called Walter Mondale, who was vice president and, of course, in charge of the Senate at the time, and asked him what he could do, and he said, well, he'll see if he can get it moved up. And he was successful in doing that, and so the bill passed. Oh, my gosh. And so uh, the credit, really, for it being officially a wilderness and for the expansion of it uh, really goes to Overstar and to Walter Mondale, uh, because they were the ones that accomplished it. Um, So... But what I've learned over the years, Tony, not only with the Boundary Waters Canoe Area, but many areas that I've worked on throughout the country is that conservation is a never-ending process. Yeah, There's always some problem to overcome to protect the area. And in the Boundary Waters Canoe Area, uh, the other threat we had is that it sits on top of one of the largest uh, reserves of copper nickel in the world. Yep. And there's always been an interest uh, from mining companies to get in there and mine copper and nickel. And so when I was with the Isaac Walton League, Ray Hake, who was president of the league, but at one time uh, was one of the uh, lawyers for the attorney general in Minnesota, uh, we sued uh, uh, to preserve it so that it could not uh, be mined, and we were successful in that. But that's the thing that we constantly would 
be going through, there was always some issue. Yeah, you know, we're still fighting the mining in the Boundary Waters watershed to this day. I mean, it it's in the news almost on a weekly basis here, Bob. It, you know, um, the the big Ango Fagasta Chilean mining group finally kind of was stopped from mining just on the west end of the Boundary Waters, and now, um, but now they've been given um, they've been given um permission to start drilling core samples to yeah. you know so yeah you're i totally agree with you that about this ongoing thing uh, ongoing conservation is an, is an ongoing process i wonder before we move to your um your career in, in the federal government if you've got any other um any sigurd olson anecdotes i mean one of the things that i tell people when i take them to the boundary waters is that Sigurd Olson was burned in effigy in Ely during the Senate yes. hearings on the Boundary Waters, which people, you know, as they're paddling through these beautiful lakes, they cannot believe that that there were people who so disliked the idea of protecting this wilderness that they were burning Sigurd Olson, this well, revered I'll, figure in effigy. Yeah, during that time, there was, of course, a big interest in logging <laughs> in the Boundary Waters area. Uh, I can tell you that uh, uh, when I was up there the one time with him, and he never wrote in the cabin or in the house. He had a little, he had a little building at the back of his property, where he called his writing shack, mm. and that's where he did the writing of his books. Not in the cabin or not at Listing Point, but he did it in his his little writing uh, shack. Uh, one time, my wife and I were up there, and I remember. Sig's wife uh, uh, canned jelly and gave my gave my wife a jar of her uh, rhubarb jam that she had had made, and uh, I thought I thought that was great. At the time, uh, uh, the uh, Secretary of Interior James Watt was highly controversial. I remember, and yeah. Department of Interior had decided to. Uh, award Sigurd Olson uh, an award for his leadership in wilderness, and Sigurd refused to accept it uh, from the from the secretary. He he uh, was so against the policies of James Watt that he would not accept the award. Hmm. And so later on, uh, that award was carried up to Ely, Minnesota, by myself and and. Uh, Peter Gove, who worked for Governor Anderson, was a staff man for Governor Anderson, and we presented the award to Sigurd Olson no in, his back, in his backyard. <laughs> but, oh, that's uh, fantastic! But the one thing about Sigurd, uh, he was he was a very gracious uh, person, and, and of course an excellent writer. But he was perhaps the most humble man hmm. that you'd ever a gentle. He was a gentle giant, is what he was, and a man of he, and a man of deep Christian faith. And the man, uh, well, of course, his belief was, of course, that God had given the earth, created all the beauty that's before us, yeah, and that it must be preserved. And so, from those days, of course, uh, uh, that uh, stimulated me into the things that I did later in my career. 
Well, now let's talk other, about, uh, let's yeah. let's talk about you your move to Washington D.C. because I mean it's one thing to be in the mix in the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, but in the Department of Interior and the federal issues at play is uh, that's a whole another level of complexity. Very. Uh, I got I got a call uh, in the evening from the White House. And um, the White House said that President Carter wanted me to come to Washington and meet with him. Hmm. And would I would I come? So I I flew out to Washington and met with the president in in the Oval Office. Oh my goodness! And uh, he said he wanted me to be the Assistant Secretary of Interior and to be in charge of the national parks, the Fish and Wildlife Service the Bureau of Outdoor Recreation, and a number of, of commissions. And um, so I agreed uh, to do that. And um, I could sense from him his his sincere interest in conservation and the environment. And <clears throat> we discussed it. We discussed his fishing. He used to tell me that he fished in, in ponds in Georgia for bass. Uh, later on, of course, Cecil Anderson, I got him to trout fish and, okay. and to fish for salmon in Alaska. Wait, be, wait, didn't didn't he get attacked by a rabbit while he was fly fishing in yeah, out west yes, one time? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, uh, he even tied his own flies. That's he got to tie his own own flies. He uh, he, uh, he, he was such a gentle man that uh, I and I worked, of course, for several presidents and. Uh, Carter was what I considered a decent human being, hmm. a very intelligent, uh, a very gentle, compassionate individual. But he did two things for me, which were important. One is that I didn't want political appointees in the positions that I was responsible for. I didn't want uh, a person to be the head of the Park Service just because they were political. I wanted professional, the best people I could find to be director of Fish and Wildlife, director of the Park Service, and so on. And so he agreed to that, and all I had to do was furnish the name, and they would be appointed. And uh, so I, I didn't pay attention much to politics at the time. I paid attention to their ability and hired the best people I could to fill those positions. The other thing that he granted me was access, which I needed later on for some of the big legislation we were involved in. So uh, it, it was a highly responsible job. And at that time, uh, we faced a number of major, major controversies. Yeah, you sent me, um, very graciously sent me uh, a Star Tribune story back when journalism was journalism. And they, you know, sent a, a a writer and a photographer to follow you around Alaska for two weeks, flying in bush planes and rafting down rivers. And uh, I mean, it's an incredible story. Um, and it seems like that protecting parts of Alaska w is really one of the, the, the feathers in your cap for your career at the department of interior. Yes. I, I consider it a great honor. Uh, 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 to provide it to provide some of the leadership for that, um, the staff, my staff, 
and myself uh, crafted the original plan of what should be national parks, what should be fish and wildlife, national wildlife refuges, what should be national forests, and what should be scenic rivers. And the plan, and part of it was my trip up there, the plan uh, envisioned about 115 million acres being set aside in the national systems of parks, refuges, and, and forests. And that was the plan then that I submitted uh, to the Secretary of Interior, Cecil Andrus, and to the President, which became the basis for the legislation of the administration. And then, of course, uh, Cecil Andrus and I did all the testifying in Congress on that on that bill. And, you know, it took four years before we got it passed. Hmm. But it eventually passed and it provided 40 million acres for the Eskimo corporations, 40 million acres for the state of Alaska and 115 million acres into the national systems. Uh, and so that, that area now is, uh, is protected and uh, Alaska is huge, but it's also very fragile. Yeah. And so it was important to do that, but it was a tough because you had to balance, uh, you know, between the, uh, allowing bears for hunting, but keeping some in the national park, you had to balance the minings so that, there was some mining available, and yet some was protected, and so on. So it was a complicated thing, and and uh, very very fortunately, the Minneapolis Star and Tribune uh, sent a reporter and photographer and spent a couple of weeks with me. We met with the Indians, we met with loggers, we met with miners. Uh, I was on the television programs up there, and uh, but they had a chance to see the whole the whole uh, state of Alaska and, and what was involved. And so uh, it was passed. And after President Carter left office, um, his, his uh, legacy, he felt, his legacy was first the Camp David Accord and second, the passage of the Alaska Lands Bill. Hmm. And so I felt very good that I was a part of that and that we were able to accomplish that. I could tell you some of the stories about it and how complicated it was uh, to get it passed, but but it passed the fall of 1980. Yeah, the, the Star Tribune piece is incredible and, and really portrays you as someone who I think who understands diplomacy not necessarily diplomacy in the way we think of it in like international relations right now but yeah a lot of competing interests in alaska you've already mentioned you know there's the native people there's hunting and fishing there's professional hunting and fishing guides you know um so there are commercial interests uh yeah it's it's incredible and how has that act stood up do you feel like alaska is still as protected as it was in 1980 when that passed uh well it's going to be protected for all time there will always be chinks in the armor mm -hmm. uh, and there will be efforts to get into the arctic wildlife refuge and drill for oil uh <clears throat> but i think 
Um, it's the most important environmental piece of legislation that ever passed Congress. Hmm. There's no question about it. Uh, between that and the other areas that were that we initiated uh, as national parks and uh, expanded as national parks, uh, our administration doubled the authorized acres of national parks in the United States, and we tripled the authorized acreage of wildlife refuges in the United States and substantially improved the trail system. Hmm. So it's just a major, major accomplishment. And to me, uh, President Carter, and I've worked for other presidents as well, but President Carter has to go down as, as uh, perhaps the greatest conservation president that this country has had. No kidding. Yeah. That's not, I don't think that's part of the popular understanding of his presidency. No, but it is, if you look at the facts, Wow, it is. And I think, you know, when you say about these parks and the trail systems, and I don't, I, I don't know that Americans realize how special that is, especially, say, relative to Europe or relative to South America. They're just, the, the uh, number of acres of protected lands by our federal government, not to mention state agencies, is so unlike um, our peers in Europe. Yes, and when they come over here, uh, there's two things that that uh, people from other countries admire and uh, are inspired by in our country. One is national parks, and the other is the Tennessee Valley Authority. Hmm. Yeah, those two things uh, foreign leaders comment on. Yeah, interesting. Um, before we go, I, I'd love to if we could take a little turn to the personal. I, I would love to ask you um, your outdoors life, your fishing and hunting. What what parts of the, did you grow up fishing and hunting? If you grew up in Minneapolis. How did you get turned on to conservation, and and how has that affected you personally? Well, my family, uh, early on when I was young, I learned that my family was primarily Lutheran ministers, seven generations of Lutheran ministers. Wow. And when I graduated from high school, my parents always thought I would be a minister. But between the Boy Scouts, my, my experience with camping, and fishing with my father, I decided that I wanted to be a person involved in the cons conservation of the creation that we've received. And so I attended the University of Minnesota and uh, studied forestry and wildlife. And of course, I was a forester on the ground for six years. And then I got into administration, which is important because you establish the policies that way. Uh, so, so that's the background of how I happened to get into the career. Uh, I've always, I've always gone fishing, and when I went to uh, the University of Minnesota, two other guys that started at the same time as I did. Uh, one is Dick Manley, who lives up there at Deer River, mm -hmm. and the other is Hank Hesse, who lived on Van Deuce Lake uh, up. Uh, up there uh, in, north of Garrison. Um, and for 
70 years, almost every year, we have hunted and fished together. No kidding. So I have, I have uh, fished all over, uh, including Alaska and, and uh, Canada and, and, and Minnesota. And by the way, I had the best fishing trip I ever had this last spring. Uh, we caught all kinds of lake trout and muskies in, in Canada, uh, huh. just above Nestor Falls. Okay. And my deer hunting, I've, I've hunted in Wyoming and Alaska and Montana and, of course, uh, Minnesota. And uh, this last week, my oldest son, who lives in Victoria, uh, Eric, uh, and his friends have some land up at Hinkley. And uh, they've been building their deer blinds the last month. They built four dandy mm. deer blinds. And uh, so he's been hunting this last week, but he told me there was no big bucks. They were all small bucks and uh, does, so he didn't get a shot. But uh, to me, hunting and fishing is not just the catching or the shooting. To me, it's the planning and the fellowship and the communing with nature and and the cooking and and just uh being with uh your friends out there in the wild yeah yeah now how if you're if you're so lutheran how do you end up at a methodist church with my buddy well, jason <laughs> uh when we came here to washington the 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 lutheran churches that were close by uh uh didn't compare to the Lutheran church that we went to in Minnesota. Okay. But the Methodist church was just two blocks away from where we lived, <laughs> and our neighbors were going there. So we decided uh, we would go to the Methodist, uh, Methodist church. But I used to go to House of Prayer in uh, Richfield, Minnesota. Oh. And we, we lived in Bloomington. Yes. They, I mean, not, not far from where I'm sitting today. Yeah. Um. If I, if I may ask you a, a personal question regarding that, how how was how did your faith affect you when you were in the midst of hearings before Congress or contentious issues or trying to you know uh, um, uh, mediate between competing interests on a on a piece of land or a piece of legislation? Well, I can tell you one story. Okay. Um, I was in a cavern in Kentucky, and my phone rang. And the park police were on uh, the Statue of Liberty Island, and somebody had taken hostages of some of the visitors to the Statue of Liberty. And they had not been able to convince them to give up the hostages. And so they had to have a decision from me. The decision was that they were asking for is should we go in and should we go in and get them? And, you know, the risk was they could have been killed. The hostages mm -hmm. could have been killed. So I had to make a decision whether they should continue to be patient or whether they should go in and get them. So I prayed to God for direction. And for some reason, uh, I got the message, go in and get them. Hmm. And they did. 
and no one was injured. And it was also interesting to me that if somebody would have got killed, uh, you know, I'd have lost my job. I'd have been splashed all over the newspaper. But the fact that nothing happened and they were safe, it wasn't even mentioned in the paper. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, I, I'm, I imagine you have more stories than we could ever get to uh, in, in the course of this conversation. Um, in your retire, what, when did you retire from your service to the government? Well, after I left the department of interior, I, I, uh, served, uh, uh, Bush senior president Bush senior as chairman of a congressional office, uh, that administration asked me to environmental center for Europe, which is 37 countries. Hmm. And so I had an office in Budapest, Hungary, hmm. uh, for uh, eight years, I was on the board representing the United States, and uh, we we studied those environmental issues that cut across boundaries of countries, and we provided grants to organizations and to government agencies to do environmental projects. Mostly, they were related to water, and uh, so so I did that. For eight years, I, I represented the Tennessee Valley Authority in Congress for five years. And then another fellow and I um, established a, an environmental foundation called the Global Environment and Technology Foundation. And its, its emphasis as a nonprofit organization in recent years has to provide water supplies for rural areas in Africa and water supplies for wildlife in Africa. And uh, it is still going strong. I, I, of course, not involved with it anymore. Uh, there's other people running it now, uh, but it it's a, a good nonprofit organization and has done a lot of good in this world. Hmm. Uh, about $35 million invested in, in clean water in Africa, more than our government has invested. Wow. wow. And uh, so it's been important. And uh, so I've been retired for about 25 years, but I still, uh, I still, uh, you know, I'm on the board of a couple of things just to keep my mind active. And uh, recently, a friend of mine uh, in, in Hungary, uh, was retiring, and he was a science advisor to the United Nations and an assistant to the president of the country, was retiring. And, and so they were going to honor him in the parliament uh, in Budapest. And uh, he asked that I be one of the speakers oh. uh, for his retirement. So we flew out there a couple months ago, and I, I uh, spoke in the parliament in Budapest. Uh, uh, and in that, uh, you talk about my faith. I, I did, I did uh, express the importance of faith when it comes to the environment. Hmm. And uh, I, I still remember Dick Dore, who southeastern Minnesota woods is named after the Dore 
Hardwood Memorial Forest. He was a poet of sorts and a writer of sorts, but he uh, he wrote uh, a poem that I always uh, enjoyed when he said, "Your created has your creator has created all things necessary to sustain you, and found them to be good. While you dwell among the mortals, you may partake thereof. Use them wisely and judiciously." Guard them closely, squander them not. For if you are untrue to that sacred trust, mankind shall not be perpetuated, but shall perish from this earth. And I use that in my remarks Amen. in the Parliament. Well, that is, I can't imagine a better place to conclude our conversation. I really appreciate That's beautiful. And uh, I mean, it's that poem i think is a testament even to your entire life's work so thank you thank you for thank everything you, you've done yeah thank you tony for your for your work and for your continuation of supporting the boundary waters area, all of the wilderness areas and yeah. and the outdoors like i told uh several people uh, you know, it's really a national holiday in Minnesota when it's a walleye season opening. Uh, or deer or, hunting. Whitetail, hunt. yeah. Walleye <laughs> opener, which of course yeah. is always the day before Mother's Day, which is yeah, terrible right. timing. <laughs> yeah. And deer and the and deer opener the first Saturday yeah, of just, November. Just uh, and that's why closing the deer season one year was not oh, an easy thing to do. <laughs> I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Well, thanks so much for your time. 